This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings on the industry you can regularly read over on The Wrap, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can now listen to on Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. He and I are recording this week's show on Sunday, October 8th, and 20 years ago today, Mickey's PhilharMagic opened at the Magic Kingdom in Florida, and you must have seen this uh, East Coast or it, the West Coast iteration, the one that DCA that opened in 2019. Yeah, I haven't seen the DCA one yet, but yeah, I, I remember when when it was new and it was very fun and charming, so I'm excited to dig into that on the second half of today's show. All right, but of course, before we do that, there's the news portion, and as always, the news portion of today's show is brought to you by Fine Tuning's new sponsor, which is Touring Plan's own travel agency, and if you're thinking of visiting the Walt Disney World Resort down in Florida, or the Disneyland Resort out in California, these obviously knowledgeable folks can help you plan your dream vacation. They'll even toss in a, a subscription to Touring Plan's for free, so... If you're thinking of leaving the house to go meet with the mouse, the first stop on that journey really needs to be this website, touringplans.com backslash travel. Jumping into the news now, and we typically start by talking about the box office. And number one at the box office this weekend is Exorcist the Believer. And did you see that? Yeah, I saw it. I, I really enjoyed it. I mm. was a little mystified by the... The negative reviews because I had a great time watching it. Yeah. Okay. So that made 27 million domestic. Supposed to be the first film of a new trilogy. Is that right? Correct. They've already dated the next one, which is called they The did. Exorcist Deceiver, which is April 18th, I believe, 2025. You know, just that, the, the just the thing you want to watch over the Easter holiday, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and there have been a lot of Exorcist sequels and prequels. I mean, the first was The Heretic back in June of 77, and then there was The Exorcist 3 that was actually directed by William Peter Blatty, the guy who wrote the original novel. Yeah. And the, the screenplay for the, the first Exorcist film. And, and then there were prequels, but there was sort of a, a frenzy back in June of 2021 when uh, the rights for making a new trilogy became available, right? Yeah, I mean, it was it ended up being a deal that Universal and Blumhouse put down for $400 million uh, to make these three movies. And it seems like a lot. It was definitely a licensing thing, but... You know, at the time that the deal was made, it was the height of, you know, streaming, the streaming frenzy, and they were snapping up rights to all these high-profile things. Mm -hmm. We were still in the middle of the pandemic, and it seemed like a good idea at the time, probably. I will also say that, you know, they've already started to monetize this property. 
if you've been to Halloween Horror Nights on the East or West Coast, you have been through the Exorcist Believer mm-hmm. maze. There are There's merchandise being sold at the parks in relationship to this movie. So people that are like, you know, the, saying the sky is falling because it didn't crack $30 million opening mm-hmm. weekend, you just need to settle down. It's going to have a long run through October. In fact, I believe that it'll probably be available on PVOD before Halloween even rolls around. And then obviously it'll have a much longer life on Peacock and various universal owned outlets, you know, the, the AMC fear fests of the future, future years and all that. So I don't think you're wrong. And in fact, the the point you just brought up about it not breaking 30 over its opening weekend. I mean, the the very fact that they brought in this film for just $30 million production cost-wise. And also, the other thing that's kind of fascinating about this is I think the <laughs> what comforted the folks at Universal and, and Peacock was Warner's opened its books. And Exorcist, back when it was first released at theaters in 73 ultimately was the highest grossing film for that year and then went on for a time at least in the 70s was the highest grossing film at Warner Brothers in fact it was kind of a you know a tough pill for the studio management to take because prior to that their highest grossing film had been My Fair Lady so it's like oh yeah Rex Harrison (laughs) you know Audrey Hepburn high class you know as opposed to pea soup spewing you know Linda Blair. Did you see that the movie opened 50 years to the day of the original? 50 years to the day. That's pretty crazy. But anyway, Warner's opened the books and pointed out that, by the way, over the past 50 years, between the multiple re-releases and that sort of thing, we've made $440 million off of this thing. So, you know, the whole notion of, well, you paid 400 but look what they made long term. So it's like, this seems like a safe bet. But that's, again, now to to pivot to (laughs) the animation news of the day. I mean, again, this is kind of the entertainment world we live in these days. The safe bet. And case in point, Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, uh, which is a sequel to Paw Patrol, the movie, which in turn is based on the the Paw Patrol animated series, which debuted on Nickelodeon back in August of 2013. It's the second weekend in release for this animated feature, which, by the way, is in 4,027 theaters, which is 38 more than last week, Drew. They actually upped the number of theaters it was out in, and more to the point, it's in... More than 350 theaters more than The Exorcist Believer. And you know Paw Patrol Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of this week. There's nobody in the theaters to see that. That does all of its business matinees. Maybe the the evening show, but, you know, there's no 10 o'clock crowd for Paw Patrol The Mighty Movie. Yeah, I think it's going to get a little boost from Columbus Day slash Indigenous Peoples Day this week. You're, you're not um, wrong. You're not yeah. wrong. And I think that actually Yom Kippur may, might have got given it a little boost too uh, in during the week. But yeah, it's a solid franchise at this point, right? And toward that end, I think the thing that fascinated me is that Blumhouse, you know, gets Exorcist Believer out the door for thirty million. That's actually supposedly the same price point that Paw Patrol, the Mighty movie, was delivered to Paramount Pictures and Nickelodeon movies for. 
And when you consider that the original film, uh, the first Paw Patrol movie, was out in theaters summer of 2021 and then went on to gross $144 million worth of tickets worldwide. And it's backed by a solid retail program. And, you know, so it's it's a, a no surprise whatsoever. What fascinated me is the day before Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, opens in theaters, they announced that, oh, by the way, we've got a third Paw Patrol movie in development, and that's going to hit theaters in 2026. So this is just the way corporate Hollywood works these days. Which brings us to our next story. What's going on at DreamWorks? We'd been hearing over the past week or so that there had been layoffs at at DreamWorks Animation, but it was a handful of people here, a handful of folks there. And Dr. I think you were mentioning you heard people being let go from promotion, that sort of thing, or? Yeah, marketing and, yeah. I mean, not not huge numbers. Um, okay. But anyway, what, what Jim is referring to is a much larger story that was published on Cartoon Brew on Friday. Yep. And basically saying that the studio is going to stop producing films fully in-house mm. at the Glendale campus that they've worked out. And, like, it's really interesting, the breakdown of, of time. You know, they'll do 60 minutes and another studio will do 20 minutes. And it, it's really interesting in that regard. But, yeah, what did you think when you heard this news, Jim? Just on last week's show, you were talking about Chris Sanders' new project for them, The Wild Robot. I had no idea Wild Robot is supposed to come out next year from DreamWorks. In fact, they haven't pinned down an exact release date yet, but it's supposed to be late fall, early winter 2024. Is that what you're hearing? Or Yes, that's what I mean. Okay. Yeah, they wouldn't let me put the, they wouldn't let me put the date in my... Uh, my piece, but it's yeah, it, this is going to be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if uh, Kung Fu Panda is the Ruby Gilman of next year, then yes, Wild Robot is going to be the trolls uh, of next year in terms of release dates. So, okay. yeah. Okay. Oh, speaking of, of Ruby Gilman, just today, the Amazon truck came rolling up the driveway because it turns out our other target hasn't quite gotten rid of its video section, but when I was in there the other day, they only had the DVD. So it was like, eh, I, I really need the Blu-ray and, and the digital version. So I uh, ordered that off of Amazon and you know we'll look forward to finally seeing the extra features and all that later tonight or thereabouts. But it's next year that we get Kung Fu Panda 4 in March. And then at a date to be named later, we get the wild robot Chris Sanders next project for DreamWorks. And then there's a, a project that's only being done for streaming uh, Orion in the dark. Is that correct? Yeah, that's uh Meeknos, uh, I believe did that who did the animation for um, Captain Underpants as well as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. That looks really beautiful. And yeah, that'll okay. be a, a Netflix project next year. That That's sort of outside of DreamWorks, Feature animation. It's a, technically a TV animation project. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Uh, but anyway. Okay. But then from that point forward, we have these new mixed production models, which, as you mentioned, footage being done in Glendale, so much footage being done elsewhere. And what was kind of interesting in the middle of that is they announced an unannounced sequel, which are we allowed to say the S word here or. Really? Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. I can't say what it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're going to leave but anyway, that. Yeah, we, we're yeah, going to leave that. that there. Okay. Now, the irony is, you know, you were just mentioning about incidental cuts and, and marketing and that sort of thing. But there's another... DreamWorks film headed out the door. Trolls Band Together, which, which hits, you know, theaters early next month, November 3rd. And you got to feed the beast. You got to get your film into the spotlight, however you can do that. And so did you, you see the stuff coming out of the Dallas-Fort Worth airport earlier this week where the... No, what happened in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport? <laughs> well, you know, folks arrived to get on their Southwest flight. And they were greeted at the gate by walk-around versions of, of Poppy and Branch, who then would take people over to the window and point excitedly at the, the plane they were about to get on that had its custom Trolls Band Together paint job on the side of the thing. Oh, very interesting. This quartet of images that Southwest's PR team, you know, pushed them out the door and one of them was the folks posing at the gate with the poppy and branch walk around. And then when you got on the plane, uh, you were handed a swag bag. And inside of it was a troll's wig. And so they have the, this picture of the interior of the plane with multicolored wigs going all the way back. And the folks on the plane were then treated to free, you know, they could watch the original Trolls from 2016 or the uh, Trolls World Tour from 2020. Then they pushed out to the effect of, oh, by the way, if you weren't on the flight, we still have uh, sweepstakes that we're doing, that chance round trip air to travel to L.A. to see, I, I, I think it's attending the, the, the Trolls Banding at the world premiere. And meanwhile, in other ways, DreamWorks animation is, is going great guns. I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of the photos that have been taken over the wall of the change out of that corner of Universal Studios Florida, how it's now being turned into DreamWorks land? No, I haven't seen it. They're doing an amazing job building a film accurate replica of uh, Shrek's house from the swamp and the old Woody Woodpecker Nuthouse Coaster has been left in place, but they're in the process of repainting it and retheming it. And that that's going to be the troller coaster, Drew. Can't wait. Cannot wait. Well, I was telling you before we started that the trolls are also see, being seen outside of the, the sphere in Las Vegas. It's the first advertisement for any movie. And it's wow. there's some custom animation of the trolls on that giant sphere. We should talk about the sphere more on a later show because, you know, ILM did all the animation for the the U2 thing. Everything I've seen so far between what they can do on the exterior of that building, but it's the interior stuff. I mean, did you see any of the, the footage that people took at the YouTube concert? Yeah, the, the ILM did all that stuff. They did all the animation, which was just, I mean, that stuff where it looks like the ceiling is coming down on you. I mean, yeah. it is insane. Absolutely yeah. insane. The notion that you would pay the amount of money that, you know, you have to pay to go to a YouTube concert. And almost after the fact, oh, yeah, Bono on stage. I should be looking at that. I, I've heard that there is a little bit of that sensation during the show. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. It's, it seems very cool. I mean, what they've done in there is just amazing. And also, U2 owns all that imagery. So they can actually take that and do 
other shows, I guess in a traditional arena setting with all that ILM animation. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't It's very interesting, but especially because there's some section that's like very, there's many sections actually that are very Las Vegas specific, but I, I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. If anyone wants to Venmo us $500 each, we will go uh, <laughs> go watch the show. Yes, we'd be happy to go and, and, and report back. So Yes. But anyway, we were just talking about the Universal theme parks, and we've got Chicken Run, A Dawn of the Nugget. In fact, I, I think you were mentioning that the London premiere is next week or thereabouts? It's on the 14th, yeah. On the 14th, so, okay. So, yeah, I have to watch it still. I have it. I'm dying to see it. Uh, yeah, it looks just so cool. It was a, there was a great presentation at Annecy last year or earlier this year. God, Jim, I don't even know what year is it, Jim. Well, I've woken I, up I, in from it's, a, it's, 2023 yeah. is a lot like that. In fact, yes. I, I cannot understand how how is it October? It, it was February five minutes ago. I just yeah. this, this this year has flown. But anyway, I, we talk about the Universal Parks and the original Chicken Run had i think maybe one of the shortest lived exhibits at a theme park this would have been a twofer for you drew because what they did is they took the marvel mania restaurant after it closed and they changed that into the chicken run maze which had you know and as you made your way through the maze they they had you know, like a giant Mrs. Tweety looking down at you in rubber vegetables that you interacted with. And oh, that's so cool. Yeah, but but again, only lasted five months. It was there June of 2000. It had to close by November, early November, so they could put Grinchmas in there. And the whole thing smelled like Dr. Doom chicken fingers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the t- tabbouleh salad themed around a yes. villain. Okay. Um, uh, by the way, back to the promotion of... Dawn of the Nugget. Sam Fell, who was talking with Deadline, had an event over in London uh, called The Contenders. And they they asked him about, well, all right, 23 years. Why did it take 23 years to do the sequel? And Sam said the quiet part out loud, which I love, you know, to the effect of, well, at the end of the first one, you're kind of a bit sick of chickens. It took three or four years to make this thing. So everyone wanted to do new things. And animated sequels weren't a big thing back then. I mean, yeah, there had been Rescuers Down Under in 1990, the follow-up to 1977's Rescuers. And, and arguably Toy Story 2 was probably the first real Big successful animated sequel? Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I don't. I don't really understand this. Fifle goes west erasure, but you know, I guess we can <laughs> we could deal with that. Put a pin in that one. We're going back to that one. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, Ed Ardman, they kept. You know, it's like we, that was a hit. We should do something with that. And they were brainstorming sessions, and the f- first Chicken Run was so good, you didn't want to follow up with a bad idea, and so. Jump forward to 2016, and Fell runs into uh, the co-director of the original film, Peter Lord, who says, we've got it. We figured it out. He said the trick of solving the story problem was, you know, one line. And it was like, this time they're breaking in. So suddenly it was a, a whole different story. It was a heist movie. The circle back to, to Toy Story for a sec. So I remember... 
When the first Toy Story came out in 1995, they talked about it. One of the things that made it different was it was an animated buddy movie. It was an animated buddy movie for the first time, and then Pixar would have animated buddy movies for the next 30 years. You're not wrong. All right, but (laughs) if we look at, we jump ahead to Toy Story 2 in uh, 1999. During the publicity for that, they talked about, hey, we switched up the genre. This is now, it's a heist film. You know, Woody's been kidnapped and in order to rescue him, they have to break into Al's apartment. But you were pointing out that they switch up the genre yet again with, with Toy Story 3, right? Yeah, Toy Story 3 is like the like a prison break movie yeah. with even some some horror elements in there, which you would not expect in a Toy Story movie, but then think, oh yes, this is Lee Unkrich, the man who is obsessed with The Shining. So, of course, they're... <laughs> Of course, there is a a, a <laughs> mysterious ghostly telephone call telling Woody that they'll never escape. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. But then to jump ahead to uh, Toy Story 4, which I think you and I both agree, I, I have no idea what, you know, genre that film is. It's more of a romance, really, than anything else, ultimately. I can see that. I love Toy Story 4, but yeah, it is a lot of a lot of things uh, mm-hmm. it is going a lot on of things. in there. Yeah. I'm willing to forgive any movie if it sticks the landing and that moment with Woody and Buzz on, on the roof of the camper where she'll be fine. It's like, Bonnie will be fine. And just literally, you know, setting Woody free. That, for me, redeems the whole movie. It's like all of the shakiness of the story at that point, it just, they stuck the landing. It's kind of the same way I feel about Meet the Robinsons, where... Lots of lots of shakiness, but that landing, that ending, beautiful, beautiful stuff. And speaking of which, have that's Steve Anderson. Have we heard anything about his book yet, the Florida book? No, the in between years. Yeah, I haven't yeah. heard anything. Let me see. Just want to remind folks that's out there somewhere, and you know, hopefully, it it will finally make it to bookstore shelves. And very, very, very much looking forward to that. Anyway, in the world's worst transition now here, folks, we're going to be talking about Mickey's PhilharMagic on the second half of today's show, which had no Pixar in it till the Coco update in 2021, right? Mm -hmm. I I never saw that. Did you 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 see it? it again? Okay. Um, I haven't. Is it cool? Do you remember when they ran that clip? For Coco at D23, where it was kind of the shoebox edition of the movie. And they made a very big deal about this is Pixar's first musical and had all of these Dias del Morto characters, you know, coming at the screen and singing and swapping heads and that sort of thing. The new scene in Mickey's PhilharMagic is they basically resurrected that, that that scene, which again, oh, interesting. never made it into the movie, but got resurrected in a kind of a limited form for Mickey's PhilharMagic. So it's, it's worth checking out for the, just that. But we will talk more about that on the second half of the today's show. But first, this folks. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We were just talking about Coco, and something very cool involving this Lee Unkrich movie is about to come over the horizon. And Mr. Taylor, can you please talk about that? Well, it's actually out. I think it's. I think there are still copies out there. But if you track down the Mondo mm-hmm. version of the vinyl record for the soundtrack, there is uh, liner notes in there by myself. Uh, I wrote them, and I talked to Lee Unkrich about this original version. Mm-hmm of Coco, which is very interesting and um, why that version didn't work out and uh, all sorts of great stuff about the soundtrack. This is fascinating to me because this is Bobby Lopez and his his bride, Kirsten Anderson Lopez, who wasn't this originally supposed to be like a, a Pixar's first musical with like eight or so numbers, right? Well, what the original story was, was that... The family hated music, and then when they were sent to the afterlife, they could only communicate via song. So there were tons of songs, and, you know, traditional songs plus the songs that were written for the movie, but it just ended up being too complicated. But that that was the story that dictated... So many songs for the movie. Wow. Yeah. How many of these are included with the the Mondo? None of the songs are included with them, but we talk about it in the liner notes. So that's the that's the silver lining. Yeah. We talk about this version, but yeah, we there were no I don't know what kind of clearances that would (laughs) would require. Wow. Oh, that's great. Holy cow. Well, I I gotta get this just for the liner notes. Yeah. That's a great story. Okay. Yeah. Pivoting now to hopefully an equally entertaining story, and and we're here to talk about uh, Mickey's PhilharMagic, which in a weird sort of way is kind of a a sequel to the show that originally went into the Fantasyland Theater at the Magic Kingdom, and that was the Mickey Mouse Review. And given my advanced age, I actually saw this during its relatively short run at the Magic Kingdom. It, it opened October 1st, 1971, but was closed September of 1980. I don't think you were actually alive then, Drew, were you? I was not alive, but I did, I, did listen to the, I did listen to the Retro WDW podcast recently, mm-hmm. and it seems like it was removed because Tokyo Disney <laughs> wanted it, and they could not physically turn it around, turn another version around, so they just ripped it out. You're, you're not wrong. When they showed the paper model version of this to Roy Disney back in, in the mid to late 60s, after Walt died, I mean, Roy was like, this is what we should be doing for Walt Disney World. This is what Walt would have wanted. We have to do this show. But you're right. They needed things 
for uh, Tokyo Disneyland. And, you know, the thinking was, okay, they really want this. We'll just take it. And more to the point, they'd already been dealing. Have you ever heard the, the famous stories about the the capacity issues for this show? Yes, that, that it was never, it never actually played to a full house because... <laughs> Yes. The theater was like 500 seats, but there, you could only fit 300 pe- there we go. people. Into the there we go. There we go. No, right? that, yeah. that's it exactly. From day one, it was behind the eight ball. You know, just the, the operational people. It's like, you're not meeting your numbers. It's like, I can't meet your numbers. I don't have the physical room <laughs> in the lobby. What moron designed this theater? And so uh, now, mind you, it sits empty for seven years. And eventually, Captain EO opens in 1986. And when it opens in 86, it actually bumps uh, Magic Journeys out of its home over That's in... That's right. And so this empty theater, which again showed an animatronic show up to that point, they set up a screen and now it's showing Magic Journeys. You know, and it, it does that for uh, multiple years until it then shuts down in December of 93. And that's when they put in... The Legend of the Lion King show, and and, and, yep. and Len and I were just talking about this on the Disney Dish we we did uh, earlier this week, uh, talking about this is back when Disney would do that. I mean, the Lion King opens in theaters in the twenty first of the twenty fourth of June in nineteen ninety four, and by July eighth, or so less than two weeks, there's a an attraction in the park that celebrates that film that's still out in theaters. It's that Michael Eisner magic right there. Well, there we go. I mean, you know, that's what you had to do. But there had been this feeling within Imagineering to the effect of, you know, we ripped out the Mickey Mouse review and Roy said, you know, this is the thing we should be doing. And it's like, okay, can we circle back around to that idea? And then it was the whole notion of, well, yeah, but we don't want to do anything with that many uh, animatronics. It's it's a maintenance nightmare. And how about a film that does what the Mickey Mouse Review did? So it became this interesting collaboration between Walt Disney Imagineering and the animation studio. And George Scribner became the de facto director of the project. And the decision was made that this was not going to be hand-drawn. This was going to be CG. This is during that period where, you know, hand-drawn is on fumes at Disney. And so, but at the same time, they wanted the CG characters that they were going to be pulling from The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast and The Little Mermaid to look like they did in the hand-drawn film. So they did things like... They reached out to Nick Ranieri, who had done Lumiere for Beauty and the Beast. And and Nick came in and did Lumiere for the film, for, for Mickey's PhilharMagic. A lot of the folks who worked on this weren't necessarily happy because of that. You know, in fact, they, they there were a lot of complaints back in the day that when they finally sort of settled on the design of the CG characters for Mickey's PhilharMagic, it was sort of like, we're, we're doing a Rankin-Bass special here. I mean, they don't look very lifelike. But Glenn Keane came back and handled the animation of Ariel in the Part of Your World number for, for Mickey's PhilharMagic. And this had a profound change on Mr. Keane's career. How much do you know about 
the early work on Tangled? Well, I know that he really wanted this kind of painterly look, which we are finally getting with Wish, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But that they really just struggled with the story. I mean, there were sort of like, you know, quasi Shrekish, you know, versions. There was a one that was partially set in modern day San Francisco. There we go. There we go. In fact, I just found a story breakdown for the version set in San Francisco. And here how, here's how it goes. An, an evil witch named Lucretia despised fairy tale happy endings and plotted to change all that. And meanwhile, in modern day San Francisco, Claire and Vince are two vastly opposite teenagers who cannot stand one another. Claire is a short-haired, fashion-obsessed teen who's concerned about her looks, where Vince is a stocky and crude pizza delivery boy who's on hard times. And the two of them get on each other's nerves, which gets the attention of Lucretia in the fairy tale realm. And do you remember this beat from the story? Supposedly there was a storybook on the wall or on a shelf that as Claire and, and Vince are fighting, it falls off and Lucretia rises up out of the book. If you can see the way Drew is holding his head right now, he loves this story. Well, <laughs> no, I remember the Vince character was like modeled after Jack Black, I remember. Wasn't he supposed to actually voice the character? Oh, was he? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, you look at the drawings and it it is total Jack Black. Total Jack Black. And I want to say that this is also the version where it's Reese Witherspoon who is supposed to have voiced Claire. Okay, Lucretia comes out of the fairytale room. She takes Rapunzel and her prince bow and transforms him into a squirrel and a dog. And and then Claire and Vince are forced into these two roles. Claire is now Rapunzel and Vince is now the, the, the knight that's supposed to get her out of her tower. And... Then Claire and Vince eventually team up with Rapunzel and Bo to defeat Lucretia and return to their respective places in time. And even Keen supposedly admitted, well, this is kind of the Shrek version of that story. So Glenn, I, I guess, had originally had the idea for Rapunzel movie in 1996, pitched it to Disney, and they were like, eh, that's really nice. We have this Tarzan thing we'd like you to work on. And so he goes off to Paris and does Tarzan. He pitches Rapunzel again, and they're like, that's really nice. And tell you what, if you finish working on Treasure Planet, the Long John Silver character, we'll let you direct it. And so he finishes that. That comes out Thanksgiving of 2002. And then this is Glenn at Disney, and he gets tapped to, hey, before you start on that, can you go over and help the Mickey's Magic people with Ariel? And he comes away with this, oh my God, you know, the potential, what we could potentially do with animation, with CG. I mean, the, you know, and he he tries to win over a, a lot of the folks at the studio. In fact, that there's this fascinating period in 2005 where Glenn holds a, a series of seminars at the company called The Best of Both Worlds. The thing that Drew was referring to earlier about the, the painterly take of cg you know he kept showing it was the, the fognard the the swing image this, yeah there we go yeah yeah uh that they had this classic painting that they had turned into cg and it's like we can do this with a movie and that was i think the toughest part 
of the history of Rapunzel because everybody clearly everyone at Feature Animation at Disney respected Glenn Keane. I mean, you know, a 30-year veteran of the company, you know, so many of the great classic characters. So they gave him a lot of rope. Again, the thing was they would see these amazing chunks of test animation and it's like, that looks amazing. But the story is crap. And they just, they could not get a handle on what Rapunzel's story was. And then Nobody actually ever said Glenn had a heart attack. He had a cardiac episode and that he had to step away from the production. And that was when the two new directors of Rapunzel stepped in and, you know, Glenn stayed on as an artistic consultant. Yes, but all of that, you know, you're going to be able to see the brush strokes in the backgrounds. Mm-hmm. All of that went away. It did. It did. On the other hand, I would argue, I, I mean, I still personally believe that Rapunzel, uh, 2010, and no disrespect, you know, Frozen's made a lot of money and, and you know, our, our pal Josh Gad, you know, voiced Olaf. But I, I, I would argue Rapunzel's the better movie. It hasn't turned into quite the, the, the film franchise that, Frozen has, but I, I would argue Rapunzel's a better movie. No, but in, a, in an odd twist of fate, it inspired a long-running 2D uh, show that has some of the best 2D hybrid animation that I've ever seen from from Mercury Filmworks, our, our friends up north. Get um, Get absolutely beautiful. One of the things that Glenn did to sort of sell people on what was possible, and in fact, the people who went to his best of both world seminar remember that glenn would pull out this cg ballerina that he created and you know it was like wow that is amazing and then come june of 2012 glenn decides to leave disney and and sort of you know forms his own company glenn Keane productions and and the first thing that kind of put him on the map was duet the thing about the little boy and and the ballerina and we've since seen a lot of amazing work from Glenn, who clearly is doing some innovative stuff involving CG. And is there any talk yet of a follow-up feature? Because I know Over the Moon, you know, Netflix seemed very pleased with how that went. Yeah, I haven't heard anything. I mean, he worked on that show with his son, the one about the... The, the truck. Truck. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, I haven't seen Glenn. I saw his daughter mm-hmm. uh, recently, but didn't get a chance to sort of ask what mm-hmm. what Glenn was up to. So, yeah, yeah, I'm assuming he's, you know, he's creating, he's d- d- working on something, hopefully. You know, I mean, he's he's a master for mm-hmm. sure. And, yeah, I, I thought Over the Moon was great, so I would love to see another yeah, Same feature. thing here. Same thing here. But the thing that turned Glenn's career in an entirely different direction was Mickey's PhilharMagic, you know, being asked to to come in and do, and I want to say the Mickey's PhilharMagic is only 12 minutes long, and I want to say the part of your world number in it, I don't think it, it, it actually runs a full minute, but it was that, you know, working on, on that model and looking at, wow, this has that potential. From the get-go, interviewing folks when Mickey's PhilharMagic first opened, back in, you know, October 8th, uh, you know, 2003. And it was like, oh, you know, what's great about this is, you know, we can do new numbers. We can bring things in. And over the years, you know, there had been talk about swapping out, you know, for example, doing the the lantern scene 
from Rapunzel because the thing is, oh, that would be gorgeous in 3D or to do Let It Go and to have, you know, Elsa conjuring ice in 3D, you know, hanging out over the audience. But it took till 2019 for them to finally admit, okay, yeah, we are going to do this. We're we're finally going to put in a new number. But it's not from any of those films. It's, It's from Coco. And, you know, it was largely because people within the company remembered that amazing shoebox number to the effect of what Lee put together to sell the film to Pixar and how it was all these characters coming at you in 3D and dancing down a really narrow street and singing directly into the camera. And it's like, that's too good just to sit in the vault. I mean, it's kind of like the story of baby Moana, how that footage of her interacting with the wave and collecting the shells that was only done as an in-house test And people were like, this is too good. This has to be in the movie. And, you know, they reworked the story to put it in. And and this Coco number that's now in Mickey's Philharmagic was just a test for the real musical version of Coco, which wound up getting cut back to just two songs. Is that how many are? are I think there are three songs. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was I was at Disney during Mo, the the lead up to Moana, mm-hmm. and I saw that thing so many times. Uh, the test of her, the baby. But then you saw you would see as they as they started integrating it into the mm-hmm. movie that it would change, yep. and like there would be story elements added. And I'm sure that consumer products thought, "Wait a minute, we could <laughs> sell baby Moana yeah, toys. They could. Let's see if we can get that in there." They but, could so. Kind of a fascinating story how the parks influenced the movies as opposed to the movies influenced the parks. But speaking of movies, the date that this show goes live online, October 10th, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 becomes available on digital. And I would imagine that you and Charles Hood over on your your wonderful Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. They're doing something fun to commemorate that. Uh, we are we are in the midst of our Eddie Hamilton three-part mm-hmm. episodes. But yeah, I think we're going to do a special episode on the special features because they are really, really good. Cool. So mm-hmm. buy it, go through the special features, and then in a couple of weeks, you can listen to our breakdown of all the fun stuff. In order to know when these things go live, again, i got to ask about social media, you know, where are you? What are you doing? I'm still on Twitter or X or whatever, even though like this thing with the not putting up the title of the articles <sighs> is really just a pain. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible over there, but I'm still there. Okay. Glutton for punishment, I guess. But yeah, yeah Drew tailored on every platform, including Blue Sky mm-hmm. and Threads, although I don't think I've done one on either. Okay. Uh, Drew tailored, T-A-I-L-O-R-E-D, like a tailored shirt. Mm-hmm. And then Jim at Jim Hill Media on, well, what is it? Uh, Twitter X, also Instagram, and Nancy also has us on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. We do have a couple of other podcasts here. We'd like you to check out. We got uh, Disney Dish that I do with Len Testa. We have Marvelous Disney, which I do with Aaron Adams, and he in turn has his own outside project, Thirty Second Street, which shines a spotlight on Madison Avenue. Later today, in fact, I will be recording a brand new Looking at Lucasfilm with Brian Gunn, 
We're going to talk about the last episode of Ahsoka. And by the way, Drew, you were not wrong. That was very entertaining. We just made our debut on Patreon this past weekend. Disney Unpacked, uh, our video series that Len and I did with uh, veteran Imagineer Jim Shul, just went live. You can get a taste of that on the uh, Disney Unpacked YouTube channel. But if you want to help and support and subscribe to that, if you want to head over to Patreon. Let's see. Beyond that, if you could do Drew and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, well, not just the show you're listening to right now, fine-tuning, but also uh, Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. And I think that's going to do it for this week. Anyway, on behalf of Mr. Taylor, thank you for listening to this week's fine-tuning, and we will be back soon.